0: You know, early on, most of the people that we dealt with were local and and they were, you know, they were getting less than par results with their bank CDs or their money market accounts. (laughs) You know, they were in in the half to 2%, 3% return range. Trash. And for us to take them, especially if they had an IRA or a 401k that they could roll in. To a self-directed account, and to be giving them 9% returns, I mean, it's it's changed a lot of lives. This
1: is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Derek Dombeck from Best REI Funding. Today we're learning about private money in real estate investing. Specifically, we're learning about Becoming private lenders and investing with private lenders who then lend money out to real estate investors. We're also digging into Derek's experience as a real estate investor, both before and through the Great Recession, lessons that he'd learned along the way, how he saw things go wrong in others' businesses and also in his own business. A lot of great lessons in this one, lessons primarily. Centering and centered around debt, whether you're using debt in your own business or you're investing in debt, a lot of fantastic lessons in this one, and you're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and with my company NT Capital, I help people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what I do, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking to you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind. Guys, I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem in their algorithm. And I'm always honest with you guys. I see your reviews and it gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Derek Dombeck from Best REI Funding. Today we're learning about private lending in real estate and specifically about the lender side of private lending in real estate how he raises capital for, for his business from passive investors, and so much more. A lot of great lessons in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Derek, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Taylor.
1: Really excited to dig into using private capital for real estate investing. That's what really makes the real estate world go round. Before we do that, though, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your business?
0: So I live in Wisconsin. Uh, our business is based out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And we, I started it out personally back in 2003. So I started out as a house flipper and a landlord and, um, I, I built up a fairly large portfolio pretty quick and pretty much lost it all in 2007, Mm. 89 and, you know, went through those learning curves, but forced me to become creative and learn how to do, you know, creative deal structures as far as acquisitions of real estate and, um, start taking on partnerships, Met my current partner about 10 years ago, and that is when I really had the shift in mindset as far as moving to private capital, because prior to that, I, I had used banks for everything. And even when I lost everything in my portfolio and went through foreclosures and all that fun stuff, I still, I was taking on partners, but that could go and get bank financing, right? And so when I met Jeff, my current business partner, he had never used the bank for any real estate acquisition ever. So from day one, he did it with private capital, which intrigued me. And as we grew our, our company together the first few years, every, every deal we did was private capital. But we got to the point through being in front of the room, um, he was uh, hosting the Green Bay Real Estate Investors Association at the time. He helped me start another association because we, we actually live about 80, 90 miles apart. And at that time, you know, we were getting to the point where we were raising more capital than we had deals for. And we began uh, lending it out. So we had, the, we had the investors, we had the relationships with the people that needed the money. And so almost as a side business, we, we became private lenders. And if I fast forward to today, that has parlayed into an extremely full-time business with a staff of 10 <laughs> and about 25 loans a month going out the door. So, there's been a little transition in the last few years. Nice, awesome. So, I want to grab on quick and and dig a little bit
1: into your experience around the great recession in particular. I mean, today folks are very concerned about the economic environment, the impacts that they that that may or may not have on real estate, but also how they can prepare themselves for, you know, what ha- what might happen. And by using lessons you know from the past, so in your experience leading up to the Great Recession and then you know losing it throughout the Great Recession, what have you learned maybe you could have done differently or just like tough lessons that came out of that experience?
0: Well, there was a lot of tough lessons and and now I do call it a blessing in disguise actually currently writing a couple books, and one of them is that that life story but I got trapped into into using banks and, and just didn't look for any other source, didn't look for any other strategy because I had great credit. I had good income, so I could get whatever I wanted. And leveraging my personal home, I think that is the biggest mistake that people make today. And and always, because it's, it's quick, it's easy, it's cheap money. But the risk, if something does go wrong, of losing your personal home. I feel like it's just too great of a risk to take. I fortunately did not lose my personal home, but it was by the skin of my teeth. Doing it different today, starting from scratch, I would absolutely go out and educate myself on how to properly negotiate, how to talk to people. Like I've spent years perfecting how I have conversations with people, whether it's sellers, buyers, tenants, borrowers, attorneys, bankers, it doesn't matter. Everybody we talk to every day is essentially a negotiation and essentially a sales pitch of you pitching yourself or pitching your beliefs. And the last thing, Taylor, I'd say real real quick that I would do different is banks would be my last resort for funding. I would do creative deal structuring, seller financing subject to purchasing options, leases, and private capital only. And, and that's what we do today. We still run a full time real estate acquisition company and we run the full time lending company. So we don't use banks. Wow.
1: So big lessons.
0: You said you didn't you, you didn't lose your house, which
1: is which is great. Which I want to be precise on which investment or, or loan product folks are using or were using at the time to leverage and, and risk their primary residence. Was that HELOCs? Was that something Helox. else?
0: Yeah, so typically helocs, and and I see that today. You know, if you go on, let's just pick on bigger pockets for a second, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you could just go through the forums and and scroll or or do a, a search for heloc, and you're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands of posts about how people are putting helocs against their homes because it's cheap and it's quick money. But what I saw in 2007, eight, nine is lines of credit and HELOCs getting called due, which most people don't write, read the fine print in their notes and mortgages or deeds of trust. And most of those are callable for any reason, as are my loans that I give out to people. They're all callable. So if there is some major turmoil or now we're seeing interest rates rise and somebody's got a HELOC that, or a line of credit that's locked in at 3% or 4%, might that bank call it due, just so they can rewrite it at seven percent? Absolutely, and people don't think through that. They just they they're bl- they put the blinders on and they just look at it, saying, "Well, I've got hundred thousand dollars of equity in my house, and I'm going to go buy a rental with it or buy a flip." I I just it makes me cringe every time, just because of what we went through. Well, that's you're absolutely right. And I think
1: the long-term, the availability of longer-term financing for real estate is one of the things that sets us apart from Wall Street. And when you're talking about HELOCs and callable loans, you're almost talking in a way of buying stocks on margin or something like that, which is, you know, very also callable debt. But Is there a differentiating factor? You mentioned the loans that you make are also callable, but is there a different type of like collateralization or what folks are putting up to actually get access to your funds? I mean, how can they still protect themselves by, you know, using private money that still may be callable?
0: Still, you know, what best REI funding, what our company is, is a short-term lending companies. So we're, we're lending money to the house flippers, the, the landlords doing the Burr method that have that long-term financing in place to refinance us out after the property's fixed up and has good tenants in it. And they. so we don't really look at our call provisions as anything we'd ever have to use because we're so short-term, <laughs> right? But if, if we were doing two, three, four-year loans, and there's going to be some, some changes in the market and some fluctuations. And somebody's not performing, you know, a, t- a borrower is not performing, that is more when it would come into place. The only time we've actually had to use our call provision is is a couple divorce situations, a couple of, you know, contractors ran off with the money situations. There, there's been some of those, but basically that's a, a default more than a call provision. And for us, because we're raising private capital, that private capital is all protected you know, we have several different models, but we have some funds. So people, you know, place money in our fund. And so the fund is protected by all of the notes and mortgages that the fund is lent on. So it's really, we compare it to a mutual fund, right? If, if we've got a hundred loans outstanding that are funded and one goes in default, it doesn't really hurt the overall portfolio. We have to go through the foreclosure process, get the asset, liquidate, and life goes on. Some of our investors would prefer to come in and not have their money in a fund. So they may just do, you know, what we call one-off deals, one-off loans. You know, we approach them with, or send them the underwriting criteria and everything we have and says, you know, you're going to be the sole lender on this loan for this six-month period of time. There's risk and reward in both, right? The, the, if they're in the fund, they don't have any decision making. They also don't have to worry about if it does default. Their money is not all tied up in one deal. So we we have it both ways. We see it both ways. And I would say the investor that is more experienced in real estate and maybe they don't have a deal that they want to use their money for for a while, they they would come in and do a one off loan with us um, versus our fund has you know retirement account money sleepy money, money that, that people just wanted to accrue. They don't necessarily want to be pulling monthly payments or quarterly payments off of it. So it's kind of the blend, but for us and just in our personal model, we, we pay our investors 9% and we lend our money out at 12, 12 and 13%, depending on uh, geographically where in Wisconsin it's being lent out. Okay. So, so the, the business earns the spread. And I think that's, a very uh, where
1: I want to dig into this side as well the the investor side. When folks learn about private lending, they think the only way that I can get in as an investor is to go find somebody who will directly borrow my money. And to my mind, that adds an extra layer of risk because the investor or the lender in that case is all on their own in evaluating the opportunity, evaluating the property. And some folks are more prepared to do that than others. But here you're acting as a kind of intermediary and providing that. Additional due diligence and and network.
0: Yeah, and and that's actually the the second book that I'm authoring myself. First book I'm co-authoring with a bunch of other people, but the one that I'm authoring myself, um, which I'd love to give your listeners, if it's okay with you, sure, is specifically the lending process, the private lending process, start to finish. What does underwriting look like? What do you watch out for? And it's exactly that. Anybody can do it. I mean, I I have a a construction worker's background with a PhD, a public high school diploma. (laughs) If I can do it, anybody can do it. Right. But you, you've got to, you've got to know what to watch out for. And I think our niche also is because we're regional, we only stay in the state of Wisconsin with our lending. You know, we can be anywhere in the state within three hours. So we also run a full-time real estate acquisition company. So we're not afraid to take a property back, but You know, I see so many lenders make this mistake, never lend money on something you would not want to own. Mm -hmm. And we, we see it, we get phone calls from people, you know, other lenders, other borrowers, and it, they've, it's some weird non-conforming building that, you know, shouldn't, should have never been lent on to begin with. That's my caution. Anybody that's thinking about being a lender on their own, you know, just stick to the cookie cutter, mom and pop, median price points in your local area. And it'll be much, much safer. Try not to get too high of a loan to value, especially I, I believe we're going to be in a, a flattening, maybe a declining market a little bit. So that would be my caution to anybody that's, that's thinking about pulling their money from Wall Street and just placing it. Definitely consider that. Absolutely.
1: One of my big questions for the lenders out there, uh, generally in this, in this environment, I'm glad we have you here, is interest rates, the you know, federal funds rate, basically mortgage rates and everywhere else are going up are you seeing that in the private lending space i mean in principle yeah you can charge whatever interest rate you want but there's a market out there and you're not going to get much business if you're charging you know some huge percentage over what other lenders are charging so have you seen upward pressure on the rates that you're able to charge for private money
0: we've not we've not raised our rates or even considered raising our rates we're, we're below our competition on a regional level. There's national competition that comes in and, and they kick our butts in rates. They always do and they always will. Mm-hmm. Where they lack is their customer service and they're selling their loans off. So we keep everything in-house. We have an extremely low default rate for that reason as well, because if we get to the end of their six-month period, we do allow for extensions. There's provisions that have to be met. There's fees that have to be paid. But if you if you have these other lenders that have sold that loan off to a hedge fund or to somewhere else, there there's no negotiating. It's you failed, we're taking the property. So from an interest rate perspective, I feel like we compete more on customer service than rates. I've not seen anyone regionally increasing their rates yet. Uh, and I think the other part of that is what's our cost of money. If if I'm raising at 9% and I'm having a hard time raising, because we're, we're always raising money. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're a growing company, we're looking to raise more money at, at all times. So if I see that I now, now have to start paying 10%, well, then I'm going to have to probably have some upward pressure on, on my clients, you know. But if I can keep my investors happy at nine and we've got a good client base of returning customers, I don't see any reason we'll be raising rates. So that's an interesting
1: point. Would it sounds like if I can read into that a little bit or maybe try to restate what you were saying, it sounds like the main driving factor in principle for you to raise your rates would be your ability to raise investor capital at a certain level. And whether you're able to or not, if you have to increase that in order to raise the capital, then you would increase your rates. But until that point, you're comfortable where you are.
0: Yeah, I mean... I'll be honest with you. We live in the upper Midwest. We, people are a little slower to follow trends in the Mm -hmm. Midwest, just in general. And it's volatile to the point where, you know, they get scared and they just go into into this non-movement, right? Like they they won't do anything. (laughs) And if we said, well, we're going to go from 12% to 13%, even though they could still get good deals and they could still make the same amount of money they would scare away a a good percentage of them. And it's, it's really, I rock. I find it more in the creative deal structuring side in real estate than I do on the lending side, but uh, there's very little competition in the Midwest for any kind of creative deal structuring whatsoever, which I, I love, I love to be that one. I I educate people about it all the time, but so we're, we're pretty cautious with any volatile changes or any, any quick changes. Now, I believe we could we could tick up, you know, we could go 12 and a quarter percent, you know, and then just tick up a little bit. And over time, I don't think it would affect us. But again, we're, we're hitting our 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 goal as far as income. And um, we don't we don't need to get fat. You know? <laughs> sure,
1: sure. Absolutely. So as far as creative deal structuring goes, I always like to try to be specific when that that term or that phrase comes up, because they're so many options out there. So when you talk about creative deal structuring, what to you you know
0: comes to mind or, or what does that mean for you and your business? Well, I think a lot of people just think it's one strategy, like subject to purchases are creative. That's not, I don't feel that's the case. I feel like when I do a creative deal structure, I'm stacking strategies. I may, you know, I, I bought a property where I took over their first position mortgage subject to, I gave them $10,000 cash and then she carried back a second position note at 0% interest for five years. But in order to do that, because I don't like using my own money, it's kind of a religion of mine. (laughs) I went to a financial friend who had a small IRA, gave his IRA 20% of the future equity in the property for the use of the money I needed to pay her cash and rehab the property. And then... I put a lease option tenant into the property and eventually they exercised their option, bought it outright, and everybody got paid off. So stacked about six different strategies in there, right? That's what I like to do. And it it all just comes from having conversations with all parties involved, right? Like I was able to help the seller. I was able to help my financial friend grow his IRA. I did a deal with nothing out of my pocket. And eventually this this tenant was able to buy the house. So everybody in that scenario came out ahead. That's what I consider creative financing or real structuring. great. I love that. I mean, I think
1: that really gets to I mean, I have to write that down to to follow everything. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely creative <laughs> and and complicated, but I think I w- was able to work through it. you know what what was happening in my head as you you said it, but just to be sure, like, I'll have to write that down and figure it out.
0: Yeah, we might have to whiteboard that one later, Taylor. But, <laughs> but the point of that is they're not always that intense, but it really, if you take it one piece at a time, it wasn't that technical. It was just solving a problem, right? Like like the seller has a problem. That's, that's X. We need to solve for X. You know, I, I sucked at algebra, but I can figure out how to solve for X <laughs> in real estate.
1: I don't know why. So... Not a lot of like cube roots or, or calculus in real estate. It's a lot, lots no. of, a lot less complicated. No. It's so, all
0: eighth grade math.
1: That's right. That's right. So for the investor, the passive investor in this situation, who would you say is the right fit, uh, the profile of a typical investor to invest passively in loans, like through a company like yours? What's, what's your avatar?
0: Our avatar has slightly shifted. You know, early on, most of the people that we dealt with were local, and and they were, you know, they were getting less than par re- results with their bank CDs or their money market <laughs> accounts. You know, they were in, in the half to two percent, three percent return range. Trash. And for us to take them, especially if they had an IRA or a four hundred one k that they could roll in to a self directed account, and to be giving them nine percent returns, I mean, it's it's changed a lot of lives, and, and that's really awesome for us, but back then we had pretty low minimums, right? Like we would talk to people with $25,000, $50,000. It's tougher now because we're dealing with, you know, much larger dollar amounts on loans going out the door to, to deal with, or I I shouldn't use the word deal with, to, to take the time Mm -hmm. with each investor that they deserve, whether they have $25,000 or $250,000, it takes the same amount of time and takes the same amount of reporting and paperwork. And so at this point, we, we like to see people that have a hundred thousand dollars to start with, and it's pretty common. You know, people want to start and they want to see how it goes and what's the process. I actually, quick, fun story for me. I, I, I go out West hunting. If you look at my backdrop, you might realize I'm a hunter. Yep. And, um, a friend of mine who I was introduced to, but we had never talked business whatsoever. He lived in Minnesota. So we would stop and pick him up and drive to Colorado. And one night we got talking about real estate and he was thinking about buying a house and his, him and his neighbor, each were going to put in a hundred thousand dollars cash, fix up this house and flip it. Neither one had ever done it before. So I said, well, what are you going to make at the end of the day? And he said, well, you know, we think we'll make 20,000. On it. I said, so you're going to make 10% return on your money after you do six months of hard labor and hopefully it sells for what you think. And I said, Mike, we pay our investors 9% returns for doing nothing. And so that parlayed into uh, the first amount of money that he invested with us was like $65,000. And from that point on, this has been about five years now, he's got about $550,000 with us there. His average rate of return, because he is involved in a couple other deals that I specifically own um, that are long-term deals, but his average yield is 7.9%. And they had all, and this was all cash that they had sitting in a 2% money market account. So Mike and, and his wife Beth have, you know, changed their their financial outcome as they're nearing, uh, he's in his mid 50s now, right? But as they're nearing that point in time where they kind of want to relax and, and kick back a little bit, just look at the compounding effect. If they would have kept that money at 2% five years ago versus what it is now at, 7.9, right? I just, I look at the, I really enjoy the fact that I get to help people that may or may not have the ability to get those higher returns. But, you know, we certainly do have more and more people that are approaching us now that, that are accredited and, and, you know, looking for alternative investments and passive investments. And we're more than happy to, to uh, have those conversations.
1: Nice. Awesome. Appreciate you digging into that. Yeah. I think more busy, High-earning professionals should think about the value of their time, especially as it pertains to their investments. I think a lot more real estate investors would, would... Invest passively if they thought more about their return on time, their dollars per hour, and what they're learning, what they're earning in their investments, and rather, you know, prefer to invest with professionals instead if they thought about that. But anyway, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal Capital is my preferred way to track my finances and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the Personal Capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Derek, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yep. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
0: Best investment I ever made was I joined several masterminds that changed my outcome, my outlook on life, my outlook on on the vision for my personal life. Most business owners build a big business and hope that someday they'll have time to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Mm -hmm. And I was... You know, the same thing. I mean, we worked seven days a week. I'd answer the phone all hours of the day, kind of started to hurt my family life uh, with my wife and kids. So we designed our personal life and we built a business that fits within the time that's left to work. So I just got back from a five week road trip with my family a couple of days ago. And I averaged about an hour and a half to three hours of work a day, Monday through Friday (laughs) while I was on the road. But we built our business where I can do what I need to do from anywhere. And so best investment, hands down, the, you know, a decent mastermind peer group of people that are gonna, you know, help you get to that, that next level. Nice, I love that. We had the best investment, now we go to the other side of the coin. This one's a little more painful, the worst investment.
1: What is oh. the worst investment you ever
0: made? The worst investment I've had, it was a house, and I had bought a defaulted note from a friend of mine, had to go through this entire long foreclosure process, the woman still wouldn't move out, had the sheriff escort her out and ends up the basement was flooded with water for a couple years, full of black mold. And this was on, on a well and septic. It wasn't on city water and sewer. So the water had shorted out the furnace, the water heater, the well pump. So she was living in this house and she was a hoarder living in this house with Chamber. space heaters and she would bring jugs of water from her, uh, daughter's house to flush her toilet. But oh. oh, by the way, the septic tank was collapsed, so all the raw sewage that she was flushing was going into the basement. Oh, so it was awesome. I did not lose money on that deal, but it was close. It cost me a lot of cleanup. So. Wow, and a big, probably big headache, a lot of stress related to that. I would. Oh bet. yeah, for sure,
1: for sure. Wow, But a, a great one. story! <laughs>
0: right. right.
1: Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing?
0: To me, I think people are way too quick to blame somebody else. I, I was born and raised to take responsibility for your actions. That's what we did when the markets crashed in 2007. We, we robbed Peter to pay Paul for as long as we could. We made everything as right as we possibly could with everybody. And And the second one was, you know, don't don't become enslaved to a bank. Don't, don't, you know, if you want to control your business, you can talk to a private individual. You can go work things out. If Taylor, if I had your money in a deal and the deal was going sideways, you and I could sit down and, and hash out a plan. If you're dealing with, with big banks and corporate America, there, there's nobody to talk to. I know this firsthand because I tried and I, I just, I really feel like people, they, they get sucked into that and, there's no way out. And you know, the last thing is if you're in any kind of bank debt right now, that, that has adjustments or balloons, try and get fixed rate financing as quick as you can. Wow. A lot of great lessons there. And a lot of great
1: lessons in our conversation today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to find you on the internet or find your books that are coming up or anything like that, where can they track you down?
0: so bestREIFunding.com is is our main website for our lending company my email and if anybody wants the electronic version of these books when they come out it'll be towards the you know November December but uh for free I just shoot me an email at, at my personal email Derek derek at bestreifunding.com and the last thing I'll throw out there real quick Taylor we also host a conference it'll be in Cancun in February of uh 2023. It's an advanced strategies conference, but it's also a huge networking conference. So we have speakers that come in and speak from nine until one in the morning. And then the rest of the afternoon and into the evening is networking time. And we have some town hall sessions in the evening, which are more interactive. But it's really, really cool. We also encourage people to bring their children so their kids can meet other kids who have parents that are freaks like us. (laughs) <laughs> and build a network while they're in their younger years. We don't charge anything for the kids. And if the kids want to sit in on uh, the conference, they can. We had uh, we had about a dozen kids that sat in on every speaker's uh, presentation at our last event. So that's uh, Generations of Wealth. It's G O W voyage.com. If you want to be involved with that, we'd love to have you. And man, I, Taylor, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's a pleasure Saul. So all mine. It's been a great
1: conversation and I hope our listeners have gotten a lot out of it. To those out there tuning in, thank you so much for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and
0: Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.